0: The Good Fight with Yasha Monk.
1: My name is David Bromwich. I teach literature and humanities at Yale, and I wrote a short essay for Persuasion recently on John Milton and the psychology of censorship. This was intended, I should add, as the first of a series the Persuasion Community aims to publish on classic texts that speak to some concerns of our present moment. I chose Milton's political tract, Areopagitica, which he wrote in 1644 during the English Civil War, in order to question the motives and the wisdom of an act of parliament that would have required official approval and licensing of any work submitted for publication. The proposed measure was an innovation of preventive ethics. Stop the bad thing before it appears, before it does the harm you think you know it will do. Licensing in this way would have amounted to censorship before the fact. The licensor himself acting on behalf of parliament would prevent the publication of anything dangerous to civil society or tending to pollute the minds of the people. Because the proposal for licensing came up in time of war, it could also be defended as an emergency measure. But Milton was unmoved by this argument from necessity. The political order of 17th century England was largely influenced by Protestant religious doctrine. So the pretext for censorship was the tendency of bad books to lead their readers spiritually astray. That the book would tempt them not just to crime but to sin was the likely suspicion regarding books that propagated wrong ideas. We're living now at a time of increased surveillance and hair trigger sensitivity to the possible injuries that follow from the speaking or printing of forbidden words. A new doctrine goes even farther and maintains that a real injury may occur even where no harm was intended by the speaker or writer. We have an ever widening spectrum of offenses. The word that seemed innocent yesterday may be deemed poisonous tomorrow. The formal or informal edicts against books like To Kill a Mockingbird and Huckleberry Finn, because characters in those books use the low word for a Black person, are only the most obvious examples. Names, as well as words, are now subject to a similar pattern of enhanced scrutiny. In January of this year, the San Francisco School Board announced Its decision to rename 44 schools on the ground that, for example, Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln were racist by our standards and so fell short of the stature required to give their names to a public school. Young adult fiction has been a sector of publishing, especially beset by attacks for supposed deleterious content, attacks that have incited boycotts against some books and forced the withdrawal of others. What struck me very forcibly looking at these recent instances of censorship was the evident belief by the censors that they were in the position of an innocent judge rendering a proper decision against a guilty name, word, or set of words. It was precisely this assumption of one's own innocence by the reader, or for that matter, a government official responsible for licensing, that Milton set out to explode when he wrote Areopagitica. He did it by exposing the error of two wrong ideas we may have about ourselves. The first is that we ourselves are essentially innocent, pure, uncorrupt. On the contrary, says Milton, we come into the world impure, and our best hope is that we may make ourselves good. The second false belief is that we preserve our purity by staying clear of all harmful stimuli. No, Milton replies, we purify ourselves gradually and only by contest, by trial. And trial is by what is contrary. What about the peculiar title of Milton's pamphlet, Areopagitica? It comes from Areopagus, a rocky outcropping in Athens, which was the seat of that city's judicial authority, the place where Paul in the book of Acts defended his Christian doctrine and where Socrates had delivered a celebrated oration four centuries earlier. Milton himself was the secretary of Oliver Cromwell during the English Civil War and a radical defender of individual conscience against corporate bodies, which by definition have no soul. David Bromwich's piece called Milton on Censorship was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community.
2: Well, today it's my real pleasure to have Rana Mitter on the podcast. Rana is the professor of the history and politics of China at Oxford University. He's a regular presenter of the free thinking program on BBC Radio Free. And he is really one of the most astute observers of contemporary China, somebody who understands its history very, very deeply. His latest book is on how China's changing memory of World War II is shaping a new nationalism. We had a long conversation about what he sees as the four basic ingredients of the contemporary Chinese model, which include authoritarianism, but they also include consumerism, globalization technology, the way that those four work together. It's a kind of DNA model, ACGT, to make sense of contemporary China. I think for anybody who's trying to think about the nature of a country today, the changes in the country, and what that means for the international system, this conversation is an incredible primer. I learned a lot from it. Rana welcome to the podcast.
0: Yasha, it's a real pleasure to be on, and it's great to be talking with you today. You
2: know, I'm trying to understand China. I'm actually learning some Chinese at the moment, and I hope to go spend a little bit of time there if I get the chance. You had a really interesting article a few months ago in Foreign Affairs in which you say that the authoritarian nature of a government is, of course, key to understanding China. But if you just look at it through that prism, you really miss a lot of the most important things. Talk us through that and what that means for how we should perceive China today.
0: Absolutely, Asha. And I didn't know that you were learning Chinese, but that's great to hear you adding that to your list of skills. And I look forward to trying out some Putonghua on you, at uh, perhaps in a, in a future conversation. Very good. Very good. So one of the things that has always puzzled me when trying to work out what this extraordinary phenomenon in our world is today, that is today's China, is that it's so easy to take one aspect of it and try and essentially apply what's often a very false analogy. So, you know, for a long time, because the story was an economic story, it was about, oh, China is the new Japan. You know, Japan was going to be the big economic superpower of the 1980s and now it's China. And then we realized, well, that really isn't enough. Or on the other hand, actually, you no, know, China is the new Soviet Union. It's all about the new Cold War. And that's a phrase that you know, all of us have heard many, many times if we keep an eye on the news to do with US-China relations in particular. And yet, as people have also pointed out, the Cold War did not involve the level of economic and geopolitical interdependence. That is clearly the case between China and much of the West today, certainly the United States. So I ended up thinking, actually, that it was a combination of factors that really made the difference for me. And something I noticed in a slightly whimsical way was that the initials of those particular factors also happen to be the initials of the nucleotides, in other words, the elements that make up a DNA molecule. So I call this my China DNA model of what's going on. And the strands that uh, sit within it are ACGT. I also call it the kind of ACGT model, which are authoritarianism, consumerism, globalization, and technology. And the point is that rather like DNA, which combines four little chemicals to make, you know, extraordinary um, human beings and and, and other creatures. So China has managed to combine these four factors and actually make them much more than the sum of their parts in a way that means that, for instance, by having this incredibly top-down government, one in which freedoms and ability to actually speak out on a whole variety of political issues have shrunk even in the last 10 years compared to where they were before, and they weren't exactly that free before, but certainly that ground has shrunk.
2: Tell us a little bit about that. I think it'd be great diving into each of these ACGTs. So on your of how is it that China is less free today than 10 years ago? What kind of freedoms did average Chinese have 10 years ago that now they lack?
0: Absolutely, so each of those deserves a bit of unpicking. In terms of authoritarian government, one thing that should never be in doubt is that the Chinese Communist Party has always intended ever since it came to power in 1949, to have top-down control over the whole of society. My own feeling is that any sense that China was moving towards a more liberal type of democracy was always misplaced. The idea that it was moving towards a more liberal type of authoritarianism, now that is different and I think that is plausible in certain ways. Certainly the 1980s before the lead up to Tiananmen Square in 1989 would be an example of that. But let's stick to the more recent years. What has changed in let's say 10 years? Well let's say 10 years ago while Hu Jintao was still president, while essentially China was seeking to maintain the party state system but perhaps farm out some of the functions more to the government as opposed to the party and it was easy I think to differentiate the Communist Party from the government in some ways at that point. You would find, for instance, that investigative journalists could go and investigate social evils in various of the provinces of China. So, you know, corrupt local officials who were basically creaming off profits from industries into their back pockets, or indeed safety violations, you know, miners being sent down the mines and then, you know, dozens of them being killed in these awful mine shaft accidents because health and safety hadn't been operated. Now, at that time, there was a certain amount of interest It seemed at top levels in the party, allowing a certain amount of openness, a certain amount of ability to actually speak about these issues publicly. And I think not coincidentally, of course, Chinese social media took off in a big way at that time. And even into the late 2000s, early 2010s, political scientists like Gary King have written about the way in which actually there was a lot of complaints about the government on Chinese social media during that time. The problem was if you actually said, well, let's do something about it, like gathering together and forming a party. That was absolutely a no-no.
2: Yeah, it's a fascinating paper, if I remember right. Part of what it's arguing is that, you know, you would think that anything that's supportive of a government is allowed and anything that's critical of a government is censored. But it turns out that even at a moment of Chinese nationalism, when the government is having a strong anti-Japanese line, if you say, let's go to the streets and protest the Japanese and how terrible they are, those are going to be shut down, if I remember the paper correctly, right? But there's really this sort of fear of any form of collective action. But actually, you could say some quite critical things about local officials. And it even appeared that the Chinese government used that as information in order to be able to discipline local officials that they were sort of especially corrupt.
0: That's exactly right. And and that article has become a bit of a classic. I think it's in the American Political Science Review, if I remember correctly. And what I'm saying basically, I think most people who are observing China, is that that situation has changed really significantly in the last 10 years. So, probably at about 2012, 2013, maybe about 10 years ago, there was a distinct Closing down, shutting down of the ability to actually criticise particularly top levels of government and particularly, of course, Xi Jinping as president of China, secretary general of the Communist Party. And the latter is probably more important, actually, than the former in terms of his job description. Now, let's be Clear. This is not to say that no aspect of Chinese government policy can be criticized at all in China. So, for instance, there's been recently a lot of buzz on social media about changes to things like divorce laws and so forth. And there's been plenty of quite frank comment in both directions. But in terms of things like the overall direction of the party, in terms of those really kind of high level discussions about where Chinese politics is going, it's become clearer and clearer that anyone who puts forward a kind of specific critical voice on that it doesn't matter if they're not saying you know we're going to overthrow the system even if they're just criticizing they'll probably find themselves on the end of some pretty harsh treatment now so nowadays you do have a strong sense that actually people who would have been more frank perhaps 10 years ago even perhaps talking to westerners now keep their own counsel they keep themselves a bit more discreet you don't tend to have those conversations except perhaps in very kind of hushed circumstances in the way of the past so i would say that even with an authoritarianism What the political scientist David at George Washington University, has called moving from soft authoritarianism to hard authoritarianism. It was always semi-soft rather than truly soft. But now, let's be honest, it's pretty hard.
2: You know, what's interesting is that transformation and how people talk, I assume from a context that you're primarily talking about officials, for example, may have been a little bit more frank with certain outsiders. They trusted when they are now, or perhaps sort of senior level business executives. I don't know how much time you've spent in the last 10 years in China, but what about sort of at the everyday level? Is there a feeling that for ordinary citizens... You have to be more concerned about what you say to a friend or even perhaps what you say to a stranger about your local situation in the city or the country than you would have been 10 years ago. Is this sort of a chill that really goes into the lives of ordinary Chinese or is this primarily greater care and concern among the elite level?
0: So I think that's a really important question because it gets to something quite subtle that I think is going on in China. I mean, on the one hand, the direct answer to your question is that I think people who don't know you very well would now be more careful about saying anything very critical, particularly of high levels of government and anything about you know top leadership than they might have been even a few years ago. But actually, and this is the bit that perhaps is surprising and brings us back to these different factors, for an awful lot of people, it's something they acknowledge in private and say, you know, it's really Anything from annoying to angering, but actually the compensations that we get make it something that we're willing to overlook. And that's where one of those other DNA factors, the C, consumerism, comes in. Because one of the things that actually you hear over and over again, and we're talking here about a specific body of people, but a very large body of people, that is the emergent Chinese middle class, of whom we've heard a lot over over the years. This is the middle class that at one point was going to take China to liberal democracy until people realised what they were doing and found out that actually that, that wasn't the case at all.
2: Anybody who's read too much of the classics of social science, like Bank and Moore, you know, no bourgeois, no democracy, so China's developing a bourgeoisie democracy must be down the line, but that looks a little bit naive at this point.
0: Naive or not, I don't know. But on the other hand, I think it's clearly a sign that while models are very useful, those models don't always tell you exactly what's going to happen. You have to look at the situation on the ground as well. So in terms of the way in which China's rooting elite has managed to create a narrative about the growth in lifestyle, the growth in middle class lifestyles and the growth in consumer availability, is of course cracking one of the problems the old Soviet Union never managed to, to crack. I'm sure you've heard Yasha, the old joke about the man who worked in a Soviet washing machine factory, stole the parts, reassembled them at home and found that it ended up with a tank. Well, one of the things that, of course, has happened in the Chinese context is that the factories are producing tanks, for sure, or actually these days, of course, you know, uh, very high-level missile technology. But they're also producing washing machines. They're producing consumer goods. And they're also producing some of the very best high-tech consumer goods on the planet. You know, Chinese mobile phones can knock a lot of European ones into a cocked hat. In other words, the circle has been squared by the state saying, actually, our ability to create military and civilian markets that actually intermesh with each other provide this huge, great populous country of a billion people with more than enough to own, to aspire to, to say, actually, some of these political freedoms, people do, you know, people say Chinese don't care about these things. Not true. Lots of them care about it a great deal. But you have to calibrate it by saying lots of them also don't care about them enough to actually kick back against the consumerist bargain that they've been given at the moment. So that's a lot of what you tend to see when you're in the cities.
2: So here I have my own sort of easy historical model, which is probably wrong when I went it past you. which is that it seems to me when you look at the history of European countries, of North America, but also of other East Asian countries, there is a period in which very rapidly rising living standards make people content and happy with the regime for very understandable reasons, right? I mean, over the last 20 or 30 years, a huge number of Chinese citizens have gone from living in very limited means, or in some cases in actually abject poverty, to having middle-class lives of some comfort, and in the case of hundreds of millions, to having middle-class lives that can rival the living standards of people in the European Union or the United States. So I understand why that buys you a lot of political support, especially among the generation that still experienced that transformation. I have a dear friend whose parents, I think, have done quite well and who grew up mostly in affluence, who's able to be sent to college and grad school in the United States, but who still remembers the moment when her parents got their first car when she was a child. So it's a very rapid transformation in people's living standards, and it's unsurprising that that buys the government what we might call regime legitimacy in political science or output legitimacy. The question I have is whether at some point those things start to get baked in. You know, at some point, you get to the generation of kids who's born expecting a middle or, in some cases, upper middle or upper class lifestyle. And then A, want some of the freedoms they may not have, may start to care about some social causes that perhaps the generation before is not so focused on. And B, starts to see some of the limitations of consumerism, at least among the elite class. And I was quite struck watching a show, I know you know it, called All But 30, about three women in Shanghai who are approaching their 30th birthday and have just passed their 30th birthday, who are all of that rising middle class, to varying extents. One of the women is generally rich. Another one is doing pretty well. Another one is lower middle class, struggling in the middle class. But they're all reasonably affluent. They're all surrounded by consumer goods. And yet there's a sense of dissatisfaction. And I was struck by the portrayal of that. It fell for the first time that I've seen a kind of Chinese media product. I don't know that many of them but felt a lot like, it's not exactly reality bites or something like that in the United States, but I started to see a sort of rhyme with the many movies and TV shows in the United States, but have a sort of sense of the despair of being affluent and the limitations of it. So I'm wondering where you see consumerism going in China, and what happens once you have a whole generation of hundreds of millions of people who just take that affluence for granted?
0: Absolutely. Well, there's a couple of things to say on that, Yasha. And I'm so glad that you said that, because actually one of the things I always try and say to people when they, you know, here in the UK and they say, well, I don't really understand China and you know, all these awful things that China's doing, is to say, well, one of the ways to understand it is to see what Chinese people see every day, or the vast majority of them anyway. And actually turning on the television is one important part of that experience. So just go on YouTube. You don't have to speak any Chinese, as you know. They all have subtitles on the shows. But very few people actually ever go and see them, I uh, I think. So that's a really important insight into what's on people's minds in in terms of lifestyle. So absolutely, that idea of Anomi, that idea that actually we've got this amazing lifestyle, you know, because these cities like Shanghai and Beijing, it's not much different from what it would be in many of the major cities of Europe, in fact. And yet people feel that they're under pressure. You know, this is fresh in uh, Fangnu, mortgage slave. In other words, you're kind of making money just to be able to pay for that really expensive apartment. And I'm sure you're aware that China's had a massive property bubble over the last 20 years, which has really kind of pushed housing out of reach of an awful lot of people as well. That's not just a Chinese phenomenon, of course. So, you know, that's clearly one aspect of what's going on. There's also an awareness of other things. You know, China still has a very limited social welfare and pension system compared to longer established, richer countries. And therefore, there's always this sort of sense, you know, that things might change tomorrow, they might change next week, you kind of have to live for now, because things may become difficult. So I think that the state has also recognize this sense of anomie, the sense of disillusionment amongst many of the middle class in China. And that's one of the reasons actually why I think the form of nationalism has taken the one that it has in China in the last few years. So let me just say a word about that, if it may. When we in the West tend to think about Chinese nationalism, and goodness knows these days we have to think about it an awful lot more than we might have done 20 years ago, We tend to think about it as being the same thing as xenophobia. In other words, when you see, you know, foreign ministry spokespeople giving these incredibly confrontational statements on video, which, by the way, I think are often made more at a home market than they are actually making any kind of persuasion overseas. Or, as I think you alluded to before, the idea that, you know, students might go on the streets and throw stuff at the Japanese consulate to protest about, you know, war crimes, whatever it might be. But actually... I think there's a much wider phenomenon of nationalism in the sense of a much more inwardly directed longing for a sense of collective identity. And for a very long time, that was obscured by what you might call the big dividing factor during the era of Chairman Mao, you know, that quarter of a century that he was in charge, which was class, the class struggle. You know, the class struggle was real in China. The definitions of class were highly artificial, but the effects of it, you know, people killing each other in the streets during the Cultural Revolution, that was class warfare dialed up to the max. And once you got to the 80s, the 90s, and the the last 40 years or so, the so-called reform era in China, although they never said so in explicit terms, if it's not in public, the party was very clear that that kind of very divisive class language couldn't be allowed ever again to create a new culture revolution and the idea of creating a more common sense of national identity along with what we've been mentioning this kind of consumerist push and of course the authoritarian you know top-down control all of these are supposed to come together that for me is why what i talked about in a recent book called china's good war i think to me is interesting because one of the phenomena that i notice when i go to china frequently but it's very rarely seems to me commented on the west is that they're obsessed with the Second World War. And I don't just mean the Second World War in terms of fighting the Japanese. Obviously, that's one part of it, and that tends to be the best well-known part in these rather bloody movies and TV shows that sometimes get featured in the West. But actually, a feature of World War II, a constructed feature, that really speaks to what you were talking about, which was, you know, back in World War II, which, of course, very few people actually remember these days, Everyone was pulling together. There wasn't so much to eat, but people all shared the same mission because we were fighting against the common enemy and pushing them back. It's sort
2: of a Chinese version of a blitz spirit.
0: It's the blitz spirit. And in fact, literally so, because actually many people, again, forget that although London had the famous blitz in 1940, Chongqing, the wartime capital of China, was actually the first Allied city, as it would become, to be blitzed in 1938 by Japanese bombers. And that carried on for about three years afterwards and killed thousands of people and you know left the, the city in a sort of sea of fire. So actually... The Blitz and Dunkirk, which is one of the other kind of comparisons with Europe, are comparisons that were used by the Chinese at the time for their own situation and are still sometimes heard today. It doesn't tend to go the other way around. I I never hear older British people saying, you know, it was just like Chongqing when London was Blitz. But the idea of the spirit, the idea that actually there were these earlier times, for some people who are pushing it even further, the Cultural Revolution is used as a sort of nostalgic reference to a time when everyone pulled together. Now, anyone who knows the history of the Cultural Revolution knows that that is fantasy. You know, the Cultural Revolution was immensely divisive. But it's not about the reality of what happened in the war or the Cultural Revolution. It's about the way it constructs this hunger, the filling in of this hunger that so many Chinese feel that, yes, our lifestyles are better. Yes, we live much better than our parents, much, much better than our grandparents. But somehow in the rush something's missing. And I think in the TV show you've mentioned, which is very typical, actually, it's not the only one of that sort. That's very typical. But there are lots of shows like that on Chinese TV and, and, you know, in social media as well, the kind of discussion about, you know, where do we go next? And that, of course, is a question the rest of the world wants to know as well.
2: Is there a real gap in the Chinese self-perception? And certainly, I think a mistake can be perception from the outside between the sort of famous, Uh, collective uh, spirit and Confucianism and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And a society that actually strikes me as extremely, not just consumerist, but individualist in certain respects. It it seems to me like there's a real tension between a social world in which, for example, interestingly, people in China have very low social trust. And even though I do think the family plays perhaps a, a stronger role than in some Western countries, it is a little bit everybody is in it for themselves and every family is in it for themselves. But there's the self-perception perhaps that Chinese have, and certainly perception from the outside, but it's all social harmony and Confucianism, and they're all sort of collective or something like that. Is that driving some of those debates, that there's sort of this longing for the self-description that the country might give itself, but actually reality is not very much like that?
0: One of the longest-running debates, I'd say over the last hundred years, but actually in a sense it's over a thousand years, is the Chinese debate with themselves about who are we really, you know, who is Chinese and, and what are we like? So I would say that the tensions you've identified there, Yasha, are exactly the right ones. And they are the ones that Chinese people think about all the time. The point about low trust is a really important one. And I think it's one that needs to be stressed because, you know, we keep talking about people and their parents and their grandparents. Supposing you're in your mid-60s today, you know older, but not in, not incredibly old. Think about everything you've lived through, you know, the Great Leap Forward famine of the 1950s, the Cultural Revolution of the 60s, Tiananmen Square in the 1980s, and then, you know, increasing, and to you perhaps very surprising, growth of China's economy, all these economic opportunities, and where we are today. But the one thing you would draw from that is that actually, you have no idea what's going to happen five years, 10 years, 15 years from now. So basically having a family that you can rely on, Having a system of government, and this is the thing that is very, I think, troubling for those of us, including me, who are liberals, because we would like to believe that freedom above all is what's most important to people. And for an awful lot of people in a country which, you know, changes its mind every few years about what it wants to be, actually, order has become over and over again much more important to many of those people, even at the cost of certain freedoms. I personally don't like that mixture. I'm very distressed by what's going on in Hong Kong at the moment, for instance. But within mainland China, it's a dynamic that really drives people, precisely because that lack of trust, both in people they don't know, and in terms of what fate or, you know, what the the world is going to do to you, is still very great. Even in the last 30 years, where it's fair to say that, you know, since Tiananmen Square, there hasn't been the possibility, there hasn't been the obvious possibility of some really major overturning of the system suddenly uh, emerging. Smaller ones, I mean, frankly, not that small, nonetheless happen all the time. The one that strikes me, and it's actually very noticeable the five-year plan that was just put through in the week that we're speaking, uh, mentions this, uh, is financial risk. Lots and lots of Chinese put their money into financial instruments that go bust. And, you know, you see lots of accounts of people, you know, these kind of middle class looking people in Shanghai looking utterly distraught and distressed because their money has just gone up in smoke. It's like, you know, Wall Street in the 1920s. Some people say it's like Wall Street more recently. And, you know, deleveraging and reducing financial risk is one of the things the party is doing on the grounds that it's part of the, the plan for the next five years, not because of some grand sort of communist reason, but because they're so worried about the fact that people don't trust the financial system enough to be able to actually put their savings into it and if they're not basically both spending and saving in a way that actually matches other economies around the world then the chinese government's great aim of having consumer driven growth is not going to happen so there are real macro consequences to the individual feelings expectations and level of trust of ordinary chinese that you've been alluding to there
2: all right, so we've gotten through two out of your four, and we talked about before, Italianism and consumerism. What about globalization? I mean, it's obvious that China is this probably globalized country in many ways,
0: but what's interesting about that? Well, the most interesting thing is an anomaly, because actually, if we think about the fact of, you know, let's go back to the, the real Cold War, the one back in the 1940s up to the 1980s. One of the things that was very notable about that period was that the Eastern Bloc, was a place that literally had to build walls you know in berlin and you know around the borders of east germany and poland wherever to stop people getting out you know they said it was all a wonderful place it was anti-fascist barrier but clearly any place that shoots you if you try to leave has some problems with its proposition that is not china today and that is a very interesting phenomenon to me and to many others we talk and rightly about the number of Chinese who are locked up, who are arrested for dissidents, for you know, being lawyers, who speak out for people who are being treated badly and you know, all of these sorts of things. But it's also worth noting that every year, except not during the pandemic year, but normally millions of Chinese go back and forth into the outside world, the Western world, Japan, you know, the Global North, wherever it is, to study, to shop, to do business, to buy investments. And they fly back and forth between China and uh, the rest of the world very freely. They know what the rest of the world's freedoms look like. When they're in their hotel rooms in New York or London or Tokyo, they can turn in Taiwan, actually, they can turn on the TV and, you know, watch people having political debates, saying rude things about China. They know very well what everyone else is saying about China in the outside world. Yes, they're censored when they're at home, but if they're ordinary middle class Chinese, they go abroad frequently. And yet, it doesn't stop them going back to China. And most of those cases. Nobody in China is trying to stop them going back and forth as well. What does that say? I think it says that China has moved towards an idea of itself in the world, a model of globalization, which is simultaneously highly open and deeply illiberal. And in the Western world, I think we haven't yet got our heads around the idea of a society being simultaneously open and illiberal because it doesn't quite compute, you know, one or the other. And in this particular case, I think that it has to do actually with the development of a model of what China wants to be in the world. And one thing, just to be clear, China does want to be in the world. If you look at Xi Jinping's speech from 2017 to the Party Congress, he made it very clear that the so-called new era, and he made it clear it is new, is one where China's no longer going to sit in the back seats of geopolitics. It's going to be out there at the front looking to shape the world. And in doing that, It has quite a lot of precepts that are very uncomfortable for liberals, but actually a lot of the global south finds, at least in the short term, acceptable, which is about human development. And that gets to that collective value that you were talking about earlier. You know, should societies as a whole seek economic growth first and provide? some constraints on individual rights on their way to do it. Now, I would say, and I suspect, Yasha, you would say, these are not incompatible goals. You can develop individual rights and should do, in fact, at the same time as increasing economic strength. But what China will point to is, well, China. You know, they will say, we're a quarter of the world's population. 40 years ago, we were dirt poor. Now we're the second biggest economy in the world. You know, this is a model that even if you don't agree with it, you have to take it seriously. And of course, they're taking it around the world through the famous Belt and Road Initiative, you know, the infrastructure project that takes in you know large parts of the Asia Pacific, east coast of Africa, Middle East. They're also using it actually to talk more broadly about redefining international norms. So, you know, the Trump administration in particular complained a great deal about. China having this major role in the UN. I mean, China at the moment, by some accounts, pays the second biggest dues to the UN after the US. So, you know, sometimes when you pay, you get. But at the moment, that is where many of these battles are being fought about globalization of norms. China wants these collective values rather than individual values to be used to define human rights. And if we in the wider world don't like that, then it's our job to argue about that, not simply say that they have no right to actually put forward the idea in the first place.
2: So what model is it that they're exporting? Because when you think of the times in which democracies were ascendant and countries around the world, when they had an opportunity to refashion their government, would want to emulate the American Republic or the French Republic or uh, perhaps the United Kingdom, it's sort of is relatively obvious what that might look like, right? You could import the constitution of these countries, adapt it a little bit to local circumstances. There'd be a bunch of political scientists who fly in, give you a little bit of advice about how to do that or how not to do that. The success of that has been a best mix. It turns out it is not altogether an easy thing to succeed in. But basic steps are straightforward. You sort of know what it might look like if Egypt uh, has a chance to democratize again in the next few years and they want a democratic constitution. It's sort of obvious how they might go about that endeavor. I Emulating mean, like China is an impossibility because unless you have a communist party that's been ruling for a very long time and has ceased being communist in any very meaningful sense, and you have a huge market that allows you for a certain kind of development, and you have a very homogeneous population, and you know, there's like five conditions that most countries that might want to emulate the Chinese model will just never fulfill. So clearly China can't have the ambition, I don't I think it does have the ambition, of having other countries emulate its very, very specific political system what then do they want to export, right? What is the ambition for how to refashion the internal governments of countries that it may have influence over the Belt and Road and other initiatives, or for that matter, just the international order?
0: I think that's absolutely right in terms of what China is looking to do and what it's not looking to do. And, you know, your argument that nobody can emulate China will be agreed with by the Chinese themselves. They often use this phrase, "有中国特色的." with Chinese characteristics, basically saying, nobody can do what we do. And, you know, in the article you've been kind enough to mention, I point out that actually one of the things that makes today's China so distinctive is this ACGT combination. No other country in the world that I can think of combines those factors and recombines them in quite that sort of a way. So in terms of becoming China, that's absolutely not the agenda. What I would say is that there is an agenda And it's a bit more nuanced than the old Cold War model that, you know, you either become an American-style democracy or at least, you know, liberal-style democracy, or you become basically a clone of the Soviet Union like, you know, much of the Eastern European world became during that time. I would say that China is most interested in creating order that is friendly to its aims in places where there is not much governance at the moment. So that would mean, you know, for instance, it's um, greater interest in areas like the Indian Ocean, which unlike the Atlantic or the Pacific had never been the particular area of control of any major superpower. And also influencing countries in a way that their norms suit Chinese expectations. And the expectations include ideas such as, you know, they're not all bad ideas, ideas of things like Economic development actually is a good thing, and by no means all authoritarian states necessarily put that at the top of their list. We might disagree, and I do you know, strongly, with the illiberal way in which poverty reduction has been done in China. But there is no doubt that it is a real phenomenon and, and should be uh, studied for that reason. And beyond that, the idea that actually really quite sort of Westphalian ideas of territorial sovereignty, what goes on inside your borders is your business. That's something that you can imagine that China is very keen on uh, encouraging as an idea. And broadly speaking, respect for China itself, you know, and taking it seriously as a global actor. To give an example of something that's happened very recently that shows, I think, what China does do and what it doesn't do. The coup in Myanmar. I mean, I have no inside evidence, but my sense is that China didn't do anything to cause the coup in Myanmar because, you know, essentially a reasonably stable democracy, which is, you know, friendly towards China, is as useful to its purposes as having an authoritarian state. It wasn't seeking to make Myanmar look like China. But once the coup has happened, I think it's fair to say that bar some very kind of minimal statements, China is not going to do anything very much to restore a liberal democracy. There was actually, to my surprise, but, you know, I was impressed, a a weak but nonetheless real statement in the UN Security Council the other day, which I believe was partly broken by the British P5 ambassador, in fact, in which Russia and China did sign on. But it was a fairly limited statement about civilian casualties. So basically... Myanmar now under the generals is a state that will be friendly to Chinese interests. It shares many of the norms in terms of territorial sovereignty and in terms of, uh, you know, broadly speaking, welcoming Chinese investment, which serves Chinese interests and the narrative of, of, of economic growth. But in the end, I don't think that China has a very strong interest in shaping any of these governments to look like a particular form of government. In that sense, its globalizing turn is one about turning things in China's interests, not in China's image. And that's an important difference.
2: That's, by the way, one of the reasons why the analogy with a Cold War doesn't seem to work, right? I mean, I think the the Soviet Union did have a very clear and explicit goal of making countries look like the Soviet Union. It was baked into the founding ideology of Marx and Leninism. And so when in the long telegram, Cannon says that they're sort of diametrically opposed worldviews and interests, it comes from that fact. It doesn't seem as though the interests of the United States and China in a country like Myanmar are diametrically opposed in exactly the same way. But of course, it is still very worrying from the point of view of democracy, because whereas the hegemon before certainly was willing to work closely with dictatorships, when that seemed like the only option though somewhat friendly to American interests in some country, and sometimes shamefully so, there was a general preference for democracies, in part because they perceived as more likely to be friendly to American national interests in most regions of the world most of the time, and in part because there was some genuine value commitment. That doesn't mean that the United States was always willing to support democracies when that looked like it was going to go directly counter to American national interests, but by and large, there was a preference. You know, if China has something like the inverse of that, where, you know, they're perfectly willing to work with democracy when it's friendly to China but they assume that by and large a democracy is less friendly to China, or at least less predictable than a dictatorship. And they certainly empower countries to become dictatorships if they so wish and continue to have very close relations with China. All of that still seems like a real shift in what we can expect in terms of democratization and the persistence of democracies around the world.
0: Well, could I add two thoughts to that absolutely astute comment, uh, Yasha, one of which I think the first one is, is particularly close to the work that I know that you do. We could refine the comment by saying that I think that China is not necessarily inclined towards pushing countries towards becoming dictatorships, you know, like uh, Myanmar has has essentially just become under the, the coup. But it is much more inclined towards shifting liberal democracies towards becoming illiberal democracies. So actually places like the Philippines, places like Turkey, it is very notable that while they maintain, you know, Regular elections, at least there is, I suppose, a theoretical possibility of the shift from one party to another. Nonetheless, the closing down of pluralism, which of course is very notable in Hong Kong as well, is something that China, I think, is quite implied to support. And I think it's notable that the country in the EU at the moment, which seems to have the closest relations bilaterally with China, is Hungary, and that is not, I think, uh, coincidental as well.
2: That's very interesting. I didn't know that. So. Why is that? Is it because liberal democracies are associated with the United States and so the leaders there that are trying to push them in a liberal direction, both in need of other allies to compensate for criticism, to mild criticism for it may be from the United States, and so on? Or is it actually because they genuinely fear pluralist liberal democracies and have a more ideological preference for countries around the world to not be liberal democracies?
0: I'd go further, Yasha. I don't think they fear them, or at least, you know, there can be things that worry them in that sense. I think it's more that actually they find them essentially illegitimate. So we have to sort of flip the scales for a minute, and I'll explain what I mean by that. We have, in my view, rightly, but nonetheless, it is our training – Come to believe that a liberal pluralist system is essentially the one that is most desirable, and that things that don't measure up to that are essentially deficient versions of a liberal norm. So, you know, Turkey or Hungary or these countries that we've been talking about are essentially countries that have slipped away from a liberal pluralist norm. But the Chinese Communist Party doesn't believe that pluralism is a kind of good in its own right. In the first place, it may instrumentally be so in some cases, but mostly there's no principled reason why it should be. And I think it's no surprise, you won't be surprised anyway, that perhaps one of the single most popular political theorists in China today amongst political philosophers is not Karl Marx, it's Karl Schmitt. Different Karl, also German Karl, rather, well, I think many people on the podcast will know that he is basically someone who was a member of the Nazi party, I think. I'm not suggesting that that's the case with the Chinese followers of him who are very much on the left, not on the right. But his ideas that law essentially is a sort of bourgeois construct that is there really to sort of fool the reality of power relations. That's something that people find very attractive.
2: There was a phase that slightly subsided now in which Carl Schmidt was very popular on the academic left for exactly the same reason. And I wonder whether that's in fact intellectual derivation. I don't know whether the Chinese came to Carl Schmitt directly or whether came to Carl Schmitt you know, via the intellectual
0: left that was making these arguments in the 2000s. Well, I'd say on that, uh, Yasha, don't underestimate the level at which actually Chinese scholars of political philosophy and thinking are very much part of the same, you know, kind of intellectual circuit as those in the West. You know, people are going to conferences in China, Chinese scholars are coming to conferences in the, in the West. And, uh, you know, there's at least one uh, very distinguished translator of Schmidt's works from German into Chinese, who's also extremely hardline thinker, is well known for being so. So, you know, the wider point there is that... Actually, liberalism is under threat, not just because people fear it, but actually, in many cases, because essentially they despise it. And that is something that's true of many supposedly democratically elected leaders in countries whose purpose in getting elected is essentially to try and squeeze out as much of the pluralism as possible. And that, by the way, I think, is why, since, you know, just getting to the last of those factors, the T, technology, I think, is actually one of the real I think, most worrying factors in terms of the turn against liberalism, because one of the things, as you know, that the new technology can do, the technology we're using right now to talk about, you know, your producers in California, you're on the East Coast, I'm in England at the moment. So there's lots of wonderful things we can do with this. But of course, it provides huge amounts of capacity for states that are so inclined to do so to gather data to surveil and to basically gather up this huge picture of what's happening in society and then act on it in ways that are obviously a direct interest to them. And that's one of the things, of course, that China is both doing at home and, of course, is exporting abroad, at least as a possibility, for regimes and states that are not particularly bothered about individual civil liberties. One of the reasons why this doesn't arouse more protest in China itself is, I mean, obviously protest is is problematic, but also the factor that you mentioned earlier before, trust. Remember that for many middle-class Chinese, being surveilled and having all this data on you is not the state intruding into your life to try and basically tie you down. It's basically providing some sort of framework in which you can make judgments about, should I give my money to this financial institution? Should I date this guy on this app? You know, should I trust this person in terms of a property deal? And for a lot of people, this idea that actually you check up on as much of, of people's personal data as possible and put it out there is, in weird ways, a deeply comforting one. And the Chinese Communist Party, I mean, I'd hate it, but, you know, the Chinese Communist Party have taken advantage of that particular turn in society and the sociological reality of low trust to actually make, for a lot of their own people, a very attractive proposition.
2: Tell me a little bit more about what the proposition is. The proposition is that we can solve the low trust problem.
0: The proposition is that we in China have gone from, you know, zero to basically being probably the world's second most lively ecology for new technology after Silicon Valley, you know, maybe Israel, South Korea, a couple of, but, you know, China is, is pretty big and not just in one place, but also Beijing, Hangzhou and Shenzhen all in different ways, producing amazing levels of technology and everything from quantum computing to artificial intelligence to biotech as the new vaccine show. Just one caution on there. Some people get a bit over the top and say China is overtaking the US when it comes to tech. It isn't, not by a long way. But on the other hand, it's important to notice what's going on and work out what to do without getting hysterical. So what does that do? That enables the state to yet again tell a convincing story. It's a very illiberal story, but it's a very convincing story, which is that our system has produced this amazing technology, which you see every day from high speed trains taking you home in two hours when it would have taken 20, or your mobile phone on which you pay for everything in a society which is essentially abolished cash for lots of people and enables you to basically, you know, live life in a way that would have been unthinkable to your parents and grandparents, let alone people in other countries. And don't forget, most Chinese people, like most of us, are comparing their lives not to what people do when they live in Berlin or New York, because many of them don't know it other than some tourists. Why why would they? They compare it to what their parents had and what their grandparents had, and that's become very powerful. And technology has announced really a kind of major exponential rather than linear leap in terms of saying, look, the state wants all of this information from you, but the proposition is that that C, the consumerist lifestyle that we've given you, becomes even more extraordinary in all sorts of ways. And the fact is that living in, if you're a middle-class, well-off person living in China today, the ability of the technology to give you a lifestyle that actually many people in a lot of Western capitals would find pretty high-tech and advanced is absolutely amazing, as long as you either don't notice don't care or, you know, don't pay attention to the fact that the state is also hoovering up all your data and using that to further its own project of political control.
2: I don't know whether this is a deliberate part of a metaphor, where, you know, every metaphor comes with some implications that perhaps are not intended. DNA is an incredibly stable compound, right? Once you have ACG and T glued together in the way that happens in the human body, it's a pretty stable entity. Do you think that's true of a Chinese model? I mean, are these four key components, mutually supportive in such a way that we should expect it to last for a long time. And if not, what might come to upset this particular combination and really change the nature of a country 20 or 40 years from now?
0: Well, DNA is very stable, Yasha, until it isn't. And that's, of course, where evolution comes from, amongst other things. I mean, it's a metaphor which has pleased me, but of course, I wouldn't push it too far. I think that the Chinese state is Far more stable today than those who are keen to see it collapse for you know reasons of disapproval would necessarily allow, but I think on the other hand, it is far from being the kind of solid behemoth that in its propaganda it claims to be and I think if it were more solid, it wouldn't spend so much of its time basically chasing around and locking up people who say rude things about it. Confident regimes. Don't care if some obscure professor basically criticises the president. You know, a confident country would laugh at that, and not you know, basically seek to to lock it down. So my, my own feeling is that that suggests a certain amount of nervousness below the surface. But that having been said, I think the situation is very different from Russia, for instance. I mean, that's an obvious comparison to make. With Russia, you know, when Putin goes, and who knows when that will be. It's clear that the system that's built around him, you know, the silos, the oligarchs, all these sorts of things, don't really exist in a kind of robust political structure that would last beyond that. I think the Chinese Communist Party, in the way it's essentially formed itself, has a lot more robustness to it. I think the mistake is thinking of it as a party, even though, of course, that's what's in its name. From the Western point of view, it's more like a combination between a bureaucracy and a religious system. And of course, the religious system also explains why, you know, being rude about the leader counts more as blasphemy than it does as satire in that sense. And the thing is, the honeycombing of that system throughout society, I suspect, has done a lot to actually give it a certain amount of robustness. When we think of the Chinese Communist Party, we think about top political leaders, you know, in their dark suits lining up in the Great Hall of the People. But to many ordinary Chinese, The Communist Party is the little old lady in the shack at the top of the security compound checking up on people's health and, you know, saying, oh, I haven't seen old Zhang. He hasn't been around for a couple of days. Maybe we should check his health is OK. Or, you know, the Communist Party is, as I've encountered many occasions, bright young Ph.D. coming back from, you know, MIT or whatever, coming back to join some lab in China and serve the purposes of the greater glory of China. You know, these are all aspects of this incredibly complex organisation of more than 90 million people, which is, you know, one and a half times the population of the country that I live in, the United Kingdom. So I think all of that just collapsing overnight seems to me less likely than a mutation of the system, which I think is possible in some form. My own personal bet is that I don't think it's very likely in the next decade, but I think in the period after that, particularly, you know, as China begins to get older, different demographics, as it begins, I think, to realise that its ambition has to have limits in certain ways, it's likely to change. But I see mutation not collapse.
2: That seems very plausible to me. Just to finish up a conversation, I want to touch a little bit more on, on history, which you've probably written a lot about China's history. The story of China over the last decades, as you said, is a story of these very rapid and extreme changes. And I suppose that that increases the pressure on having a kind of coherent narrative of what China has been and what it will be. What is the narrative about that? How do Chinese talk and think about their own history? You mentioned a little bit about the role that World War II plays in that narrative now, but what's the sort of basic, you know, the second grade version of Chinese history and this moment in time in that narrative that you might get if you, you know, go to elementary school in China today?
0: Well, I think the Chinese view of their own history has both a great strength and a great Weakness in it, the weakness I'll go to first, which is that literally in the sense that you you've talked about it, yasha going to a grade school or you know going to even some of the kind of lower level college courses, you get a very stylized top down version of Chinese history provided by the party, which is there's this continuous what well, it keeps changing first it was three thousand years, then it was four thousand I think it's five thousand years of history, you know not sure if we can go beyond that, but let's say five thousand for the moment. It's a story that's very dominated by the Han ethnicity, which, of course, you know, is the largest. But in this story, almost the only uh, ethnic group that seems to have any kind of uh, influence whatsoever. Um, and it's one in which, of course, there's a glorious endpoint, which is the rise to power of the Chinese Communist Party itself. And it's not that any of these elements don't have you know, some accuracy to them. But clearly, in that very simplistic, very stylized way, it's a story that, you know, doesn't have much nuance in it. But the reality and of course if you go for instance to Chinese academics who work on history, obviously like most academics are not listened to by anyone other than a few students, so that's why we're we're safe, you see, Actually, nobody cares that much about what we think. They will acknowledge, I think, that there is a much more complex, and frankly, much more interesting story to tell. I sometimes say, I'll say it now, that China is a plural noun because actually it's the combination of a whole variety of different sorts of traditions and ways of doing things. You know, there is a China that is highly authoritarian. There's also a China that's highly liberal, you know, Taiwan autonomous since 1949, after the Chiang Kai-shek nationalists fled there, has turned into an incredibly pluralist liberal democracy, while still being impeccably Chinese in terms of its culture. So that's part of Chinese history, too. Or Hong Kong is another good example of that. One of the things that's most notable is the large number of people protesting in Hong Kong who've now obviously been clamped down on. You know, these aren't sort of mysterious Americans in baseball caps or Brits, or even more, you know, they're all young people, very much part of a Chinese story, but a Chinese story which also has pluralism, liberty, debate within it in terms of what they've done. And I would say that also one of the other things that Chinese history tends to be in the school books is absolutely unaccountably male. It's all about great men. And one of the things that if you look at it in China that's so interesting and has historical precedent and understanding but never gets talked about very much is the role that women have. China at one point, I mean, this is a rather specific example, but, you know, I think it suggests how different the place can be at one point, maybe even now, has more female billionaires than any other country in the world, certainly more female self-made billionaires. And in part, that's for sexist reasons. It's very hard to get up in the Chinese Communist Party to the top if you're a woman, because it's a, you know, very male organization. So that means going into private business, doing business entrepreneurship is actually a good option. Those three women you mentioned in the Shanghai TV show, you know, that's the kind of thing they could be doing, Xiahai, jumping into the sea of business, making an awful lot of money. So all those stories are out there, and they all have historical backgrounds, and they're all part of this longer, big, debated story of what China is and, and who is Chinese. And I'll finish with the thought that one of the sadnesses and ironies is that for the moment, and it won't be true forever, but for the moment, the least free place to discuss what Chinese history is, is China. Think about that for a minute, I at mean, least for the moment, as long as nobody's listening in. Chinese students and thinkers who've come to a seminar in Washington could probably say certain things that they would be much more wary about saying at home about Chinese history. That is not a sustainable way to refresh your culture. Now, having said that, most of the most interesting conversations on the world on Chinese history or Chinese society are in China as well. But we need to wait for the day, and I'm sure many Chinese will be doing that, when actually China is the centre of the world's conversation about China, and we're not there yet.
2: Well, let's hope we get to that. Let me just ask you a final question. I mean, I think in a, in many ways, parts of the conversation have been about what the future of China is likely to be and what that might mean for relations between China and Europe, China and the United States. They haven't actually quite pushed you on that question. So looking at everything that you've just laid out and certainly improved my understanding of China over the course of this hour or so, what should that mean for how the United Kingdom, for how the European Union, for how the United States... Treats China? What kind of ambition should we have for a bilateral relationship in the next decades?
0: I think it's very important that we continue to engage and talk to China. I think the point at which the West, the Americans, the British, the Europeans, whoever it might be, are no longer talking to China is a very dangerous moment. And I think, therefore, that is an important part of, of what we say. But at the same time, I think it's really important that the conversation has. Different pillars, all of which are important. It should be friendly. You don't have to be friends with someone to be friendly with them. And I think it is important to keep the tone right on various things. But it also has to be frank. It has to also say there are certain things, I mean, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, uh, arrests of dissidents, you know, these sorts of things, where China would like us to stop talking about them. We do not stop talking about them because that is out of our culture that we criticize ourselves and rightly so. And we also criticize our friends as well as those who are our partners and our rivals. So a frank relationship is tremendously important. But the other thing, and I think this is perhaps a good point to end on because it speaks to the importance of your podcast, I think, Yasha, and your of work, is that we have to be confident, not just confident in our engagement with China, but about ourselves Liberal values in liberal countries have been under attack in a whole variety of ways, in courts, in media, in public civil discourse. And we have to be the best version of ourselves that we can be to be able to speak confidently to China. A great deal of damage that's been done in terms of the liberal conversation with China has been caused essentially by states that ought to know better. And that's not the People's Republic of China I'm talking about, it's us. So I think that that's really important as well.
2: Rana Mitter, thank you so much
0: for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. It's been an absolute pleasure.
2: Thank you so much for listening to the Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like to rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter, and finally